I remember just a generalized feeling of the cops and the health people, and they're all kind of working together or something, you know? Yeah. Well, that's, that's how a lot of youth feel. They feel like everyone's against them. So when you, when you say harm reduction to, to the youth, Jesus, I sound like my, my dad. <laughs> the so the youths, the youths. <laughs> I'm Garth Mullins, this is Crackdown. Episode 21, Control. April 17th, 2009. I can only remember fragments, mostly a kind of gray narcostatic. Then I hear a siren, far off but getting closer and a notion buzzes in the back of my head. Is that for me? I was overdosing on opioids and benzodiazepines. Everything felt like a radio between stations. I was just getting drifts of signal coming through. Static and sirens. I remember coming to in the back of an ambulance, shadows of paramedics and bystanders moving around. I felt disoriented and sluggish as wet cement. Where am I? What am I doing here? Panic struggles to punch through the benzos. I'm fine, I mumble, trying to convince one of the paramedics. Something in my reptilian brain tells me to run, so I stumble away from the ambulance. If he wants to leave against medical advice, there's nothing we can do a paramedic says to someone. My legs carry me away from the help I surely need. People run away from ambulances like this all the time. I imagine this would be confusing for some listeners. Why? Why didn't I just take the medical help? Really, it's all about control. Yeah. That's oh, something to do before work. <laughs> like a lot of people, the Crackdown team has tried to soldier on during COVID-19. And that means interviewing people outside. The other day, there was a torrential downpour. So me and Sam Fenn, Crackdown's senior producer, scoured the downtown east side for an unoccupied overhang or parking garage to shelter under. This is the spot, by the way, that I was thinking of. It's not glamorous, but right here. So it's like we can just hang out under. That's pretty nice. Hey, are you, are you getting too cold? No, no, no. I'm, right. Actually, I'm, wait, I'm getting hot. Oh. <laughs> okay, I just don't want us to all make ourselves COVID safe, but get the flu from standing in the cold. Right. Yeah. We're meeting up with Kali Sedgmore. Kali is 28 years old and Indigenous. They're the executive director of a group called the Coalition of Peers Dismantling the Drug War and a supervisor at overdose prevention sites on the downtown east side. I wanted to talk to Kali because I know they understand this struggle for control. In part because they grew up in government care, where they didn't have a lot of certainty about the future, and where the course of their life could be arbitrarily changed by an authority figure at any time. At around nine years old, Kali says, they started to have night terrors. They'd have vivid, paralyzing dreams. One of them went like this. Kali is alive and wide awake, but trapped in a coffin. 
and then someone starts to shovel on the dirt. And and you're you're seeing this happen. Yeah. Like you feel the dirt yeah. falling down on top of you. Yeah. Wow. Your mind's awake, but your body's not. So you feel like locked in. Like yeah, you know yeah. what's going on, but you can't move your arms and legs or nothing, right? Yeah. Can't talk. Yeah, can't talk, can't, I mean, can, people can pull themselves out of it. Mine lasts up to five minutes. So. Holy shit, that, is, that sounds terrifying. Kali was 11 when they first did coke. Coke and amphetamines were pretty helpful for the terrors because they helped ward off the night. If Kali played it right, they could stay up for a couple of days at a time, mercifully pushing off the next encounter with the coffin. But the drugs also brought new challenges. It's like being labeled as a drug addict sucks. <laughs> And having that in your file. Why? What, what could it do if it was in your file? Um, the main thing is just like, that's the main thing that people focus on is always talk about your addiction. They would always focus on that. Like anything that you do wrong, it'll be, it'll be because of your addiction. Like right. it's still on my file. Like if I go to St. Paul's, if I go in there for my anything about my heart, they're like, oh, we're gonna look at your addiction first. Maybe it's a crystal mass. I'm like, no, it's not. For kids in care, your file can really control your life. It opens and shuts doors for your future. It labels you in ways that might follow you around forever. And it's just one more reminder that you're being watched, examined, limited. Many systems that youth are subject to are rife with racism and abuse. So kids learn to evade them whenever possible. Just run, run from the ambulance, run from the social worker, run from the hospital. And maybe that's why BC's government introduced Bill 22 to stop kids from running. This is a CBC Podcast. BC's government has introduced a new bill proposing a change to the Mental Health Act that would allow youth... Last summer, BC's NDP government introduced new legislation to involuntarily detain people under the age of 19 at hospitals. Under the new law, if you're a minor, you could be held for up to seven days after an overdose, even if your parents or guardians don't agree. The hospital could even use physical restraints to keep you there. The bill hasn't passed yet but the government is still pushing for it. Some critics, though, including BC's chief coroner, worry that it could do more harm than good. I remember reading a Twitter thread from you uh, when Bill 22 was in the news, you know, in the summertime. Yeah. And you were sort of saying all they had this big list of things of all the things that were reasons why, like being able to forcibly detain youth was a bad idea. Can you yeah. remember some of those things? Um, well, the biggest thing of like detaining youth is a bad idea is because like if you don't come from a, a parent home or like a double or like double parent home or single parent home, like you don't have that mother and father that's going to care for you, and you're you're in the foster care system, it's going to suck for you because you're going to be dragged into something you don't want to be into. I think one of the other things in the Twitter thread is if youth are using together and somebody overdoses, they'll be less likely to want to call 911. They'll be less likely to call 911, but they'll also be more likely than just leave their friend there and walk away. Like, we all have that mentality that we need to help youth or, like, save them in a sense, but it's like, that's not a bad thing to do, but it's also can be really harmful for some youth, especially if they've been using drugs for a long time. It's like, getting forced into something never works for anybody. I find, I find it, I don't know if you find this, Garth, like I almost find like I'm blocked in some ways from certain parts of this story. Like it's so hard that it's, there's almost like my mind is kind of blocking aspects of, of, of the memories. Yeah, I totally know what you mean, yeah. This is Dania Fast. Dania's an anthropologist and an assistant professor at the University of British Columbia. 
For years, she's been writing about young drug users in Vancouver. But before that, she had some more direct experience with this stuff. I mean, I was a young person uh, who grew up in Vancouver who used drugs uh, on Granville Street. So wait, 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 wait. You, hang on. You, <laughs> you got to tell me. You got to tell me about that. In the <laughs> '90s, I was a young person, you know, in high school in Vancouver who, um, you know, certainly was never. Um, I was not street involved, but I was someone who frequented Granville Street and and <laughs> you know. Uh, has have some personal experience with with drug use in that context. I have some experience with this too. I used to hang out on the Granville Strip back in the day. It was different then, not yet upscaled into the shiny entertainment district it is today. There were cheap smoke shops, endless refills of burnt coffee, and old movie theaters. There was some guy out back of the Burger King who'd pay you five bucks to kick him in the junk and there were kids dropping acid or shooting coke in the bushes near the art gallery. I was one of those kids. You know, can you picture that that movie theater on Granville Street that used to be just such a such a spot? Like right across from the Capital Six, that that one? That's right. Yeah, I know it. Yes. Yeah. I'm just picturing I'm picturing a sort of like a rainy day, but just those bright lights, groups of teenagers you know, with that charged teenage energy. Everyone's pretending to be looking in the clothing shops along that part of the street or pretending to be, you know, engrossed in a conversation in their little groups, but also everyone's looking across groups and thinking, you know, who am I going to meet tonight? What's going to happen? And the youth who who I work with, you know, um, if they could hear me talk right now, they'd be going, Oh, those fucking weekend warriors. I hate those people. Yeah. <laughs> <So> <laughs> I'm actually kind of embarrassed to be describing this because I know that they would just be, you know, cringing. In 2007, Daniel was hired by a research center. She worked at their field office right off Granville, not far from where she used to party. The center was concerned about what was going on with drug users, people between about 14 to 24 years old. Academics worried about HIV and hep C outbreaks among this group. And they noted how young drug users often started out on Granville smoking meth and wound up shooting heroin on the downtown east side. Daniel's job was to figure out why. And, and so you were a, an anthropologist and an ethnographer in, in this work. And what, is, what does that mean day to day? Like, do you, do you follow people around with a notepad or uh, <laughs> what does that actually look like? <laughs> At the beginning, it definitely looked like that. Yeah. <laughs> um, a lot of conversations, even in those settings, would be recorded. Then I would um, take field notes afterwards. At first, Daniel would meet young drug users at the center's field office down on Granville Street. The kids would come into the office and get clothes and coffee. And they could get a small stipend for doing interviews with academics. This was Daniel's first chance to figure out what was going on with young drug users in Vancouver. When I started doing this research, I didn't even know any of the slang related to, <laughs> to drug use. So I would be with youth who would be kind of introducing me to people and places and people would be saying things. And I would basically be like, I don't know what you're talking about. And I'd be noting down some things. Do you remember the first word you learned that way? I mean, it has to be jib, <laughs> if you, you know, which is a totally I mean, even saying that now, it seems so funny because it's so it's it seems like a relic of the past now. But at that time, you know, it was. Meth was jib. 
The strategy was to let young people know that I had no idea what I was doing, that I didn't know the slang, that I didn't know what their lives were like, that I didn't know what was important um, to them. And asking those young people who had shown, a, you know, really demonstrated an interest in getting involved in my research, asking them to really show me the ropes. Dania gradually got to know a core group of around 25 kids between the ages of 14 and 26 who regularly visited the field office. Many had survived BC's harrowing foster care system. Many were Indigenous and many had done time. I started to spend more time with them in the places where they were living, working, socializing, using drugs. Um, and that brought me into, you know, alleyways and parks and onto the front steps of the art gallery. But it, um, it also brought me into one shelter in particular that was a place where a lot of young people were staying. Reading from my field notes, December 2008. A couple people asked me to meet them at the lighthouse today. The shelter is a derelict building located on the edge of Yale Town. It stands out amidst the neighborhood's expensive condos and high-rises. Dania uses pseudonyms in her ethnographic work. In her notes, she calls this shelter the Lighthouse. It sits directly under a bridge that shrouds it in permanent shadows. Through a heavy metal door that was the shelter's only entrance and exit, young people slammed in and out of the building with teenage intensity. Loud conversations and arguments could be heard as youth bought and sold drugs, struck up romantic relationships, and attempted to resolve drug debts and other drama. Inside the lighthouse, mattresses were laid out across the floor. People who had been there the longest took coveted spots against the wall. That way, they could hang up pictures. One couple, who she calls Patty and Joe, pulled their mattresses together so they could be close. Dania says Patty seemed particularly eager to talk. She told Dania she was 19, Joe was 20. They both used meth, sometimes down. They would both occasionally go on methadone so they didn't have to grind as much. But like a lot of young people Dania interviewed, they hated it. Patty was in charge in the relationship. She was the talker. Um, she was the one who figured out where they were going to get food for the day. She was the one who figured out when and how they were going to get drugs. As a new researcher in the drug scene, Dania found Patty's enthusiasm invaluable. She was willing to show Dania the ropes, invite her to places she was staying, and explain what it was like to try and survive the drug war. Dania'd meet up with her and Joe at least once a month. They'd go for coffee, walk around smoking cigarettes, or go to McDonald's. One thing about Patty and Joe is they never had warm coats on. It's something that always made me so worried about them. And I would bring them coats. <laughs> I would, I mean, because at, at, at our frontline research office, we had you know, a fairly a fairly good supply of, of clothes that would come in, donated clothes. And I would bring them coats and all sorts of things. And every time I saw both of them, they'd be in these thin sweatshirts. Uh, and they'd insist on going outside and like, let's go walk around outside. Let's go get coffees. Let's go smoke outside. Let's go do this outside. And I'd always think in that, we've got to get you in a jacket. They both <laughs> dressed like that. So did they ever tease you and say, okay, mom, or like, did that ever come up? I mean, we were close enough in age that I don't think they would, they said, okay, mom, but they would definitely roll their eyes at me. Um, you know, I was, I, I, I'm only about five years older than them. So they wouldn't, they wouldn't see me as a mom. 
But as a nag, and as somebody who's totally out to lunch, like, okay, yeah, having a jacket on is the least of my problems. Like, why are you bugging me? You know, like, I've just been hustling all day. Like, I don't, it doesn't matter if I have a jacket on or not. In 2011, Dania came up with an idea. She would hand out cameras to young drug users in her research group, and she'd get them to take pictures of the city to show people the way they saw things. We used disposable flash-enabled cameras. Patty was one of the youth who was very, very excited about taking photographs uh, right from the start. She was one of the people, I remember, who was very much like, I really like this idea. I'm also terrified that I don't know how to do this right. And what she wanted to do was create something that was informed by examples from the fine arts that was could really stand on its own two feet as, as an art exhibit. She was very, very interested in research and that's why, you know, we developed such a close collaboration. She was, she liked to even read, you know, sort of books about drug use and, and addiction. And they're not, they weren't books that, that I had read. I mean, it's a sort of genre, I suppose, of more popular writing about, about addiction and substance use. Um, like partly that was a reflection of her interest and it was why she was so interested in the research, but it was also a reflection of her commitment to the research. And she and she was very interested in understanding drug use in terms of her own life, but in terms of what she was seeing all around her. So she seems like she kind of, like you guys had some things in common, basically. Yeah, yeah. I think, you know, we had a nerdiness in common, for sure. Patty's enthusiasm for the research was sometimes undermined by the chaos of her life. She and Joe were never able to stay in any housing for long, in part because they'd get into late-night shouting matches. Sometimes people called the cops on them. Sometimes they'd get evicted. And for stretches, Patty and Joe had to sleep rough, until they eventually ended up at a single-room occupancy hotel, or SRO. Dania calls it the Lakeshore. January 2012. We are sitting on mismatched chairs in the room that Patty and Joe share at the lakeshore. The room is untidy and cramped. The air coming in through the open window does little to reduce the smell of stale cigarette smoke and mildewed clothing. Our conversation is regularly interrupted by yelling in the hallways and pounding on doors. Patty and Joe both agree that this is the worst SRO they have ever lived in. But Patty tells Dania that you can't really get evicted here because the lakeshore is where you end up when they can't put you anywhere else. The word Dania's research group uses again and again is crazy. The lakeshore is crazy fun, but also crazy dangerous. The, the old SROs, um, you know, young people consistently describe those as like, you know, this is our building and we do our own, you know, we do our own harm reduction and we do our own outreach in this building. And, and having spent a lot of time in those buildings, um, it was certainly true that young people were moving through the buildings, you know, with a lot of freedom and there were lots of people in in rooms at one time and, mm -hmm. you know, groupings of, of youth in the lobby and, and people running through the hallways. I mean, it was chaotic and there were a lot of safety issues, um, certainly in terms of, you know, people getting assaulted. 
reading from my field notes again. I ask Patty, so if you could live anywhere in the city, where would you want to live? She laughs and responds, I'd want to live in those nice condos down by the beach. I ask, down by which beach? Patty says, English Bay. Yeah, I love it there. Joe agrees, West End, definitely West End. Vancouver's West End is picturesque, between English Bay, Burrard Inlet, and Stanley Park. It's gotten really expensive, but at least it's a ways away from the grind. It's the kind of escape that Patty, Joe, and many of Daniel's research group were looking for. They would spend a lot of time talking to me about how, you know, they weren't like other drug users, or they weren't like other street youth, that tomorrow they were gonna go get a job and they were gonna get a place and, you know, they were going to move in with their, their romantic partner and, you know, maybe have a kid and get a dog. And um, some of them, you know, talked about that as being this white picket fence life. I mean, that's so that's so familiar to me, having this this notion that when you look back on it is rather far off and difficult to reach. But at the time, I think, oh, this is just tomorrow. This is just a couple steps away and, and that's no problem. Yeah, exactly. I I was very committed to approaching young people as part of a sort of street youth community. I think that was my political uh, sort of orientation towards the work. Several young people called me out almost immediately for using that word community. Um, they hated it. Why did they hate it? Many of them hated it because... They were far more interested in talking to me about all of the ways in which they were so much more than a drug user. Um, and I remember one young man, you know, just really yelling at me <laughs> in our frontline office in the downtown South, just saying, anybody can put a put a sleeping bag down on the street and there you're homeless. You're a you're a street youth, you know. Looking back, I guess in my 20s, I had my own version of these white picket fence dreams. I held on to it for years. It was like a bedtime story about how things were going to get better. It went like this. I'd kick dope tomorrow, and like flipping a switch, my sketchy life would be gone. No more lying and grinding and dope sickness. A whole world would open up to me. In the dream, it was always morning. I'd wake up beside someone who's calm, She's never been wired. We've been together for years and we're in love. I get out of bed and make coffee. Her imaginary apartment isn't big, but our shit doesn't get stolen. There's no eviction notice taped to the door and no sketchy dude sleeping on the couch. There's no 2 a.m. calls to see if I'm holding. In the dream, I'm not rich. I work, it's a good union job. And after work, I'd go to band practice. My guitar isn't in the pawn shop and I'm not sick. The dream was specific, even cinematic. The metal of the coffee maker, the unchipped finish on my imagined Les Paul. But the dream was also incredibly vague. The only step to its realization was kicking dope. There was no way around that part. You can't unfuck your life if you're still fucked up, right? It had to be the first step. 
But the next day would come and I'd wake up and go score and then feel like a loser. So at this point in the story, Patty and Joe, they're, they're staying at the lakeshore and um, they've told you that they want this uh, better and uh, more conventional um, kind of life. Uh, at this point, did you have a theory for what might actually help them? Yeah, because I, I think if you go and look at my earliest, you know, publications, you'll probably find language in there around, you know, what young people need is housing with different kinds of supports built in. Um, of course, you know, that's that's something that uh, makes a lot of sense when you're when you're working with a population who's who's largely sleeping outside and unstably housed. What makes sense is is providing them with housing and since many of the young people who I knew were navigating, you know, complex challenges around substance use and mental health issues, it, it also seemed to make sense to have those supports built into the housing. At the foot of Canada's west coast, where the sea meets the sky, lies a city known far and wide for its enchanting beauty, Vancouver. Here I am. The 2010 Vancouver Winter Olympic Games. I remember the days leading up to the Olympics. Lots of people were excited, but activists were worried. We were convinced that all the hype and speculation was going to make housing astronomically expensive and beef up police surveillance and harassment. So I was part of a big coalition of groups organizing against the games. Hey, my name is uh, Garth Mullins. I'm from the 2010 Welcoming Committee. So welcome. So we're going to march behind the elders from the downtown east side, from this corner of the park right here, onto Georgia Street, and out into the Olympic City with glowing hearts. Let's go for the gold! Unfortunately, we were right. Homelessness more than doubled in Vancouver in the years following the city's successful Olympic bid. By 2010, only 12% of the privately owned rooms in the neighborhood were affordable to low-income residents. Poor people were being pushed out. We couldn't stop the Olympics from taking place, but we did shout loud enough to get international attention. And we embarrassed the government in front of the world. Vancouver, the host of the 2010 Winter Games, is often voted among the best places to live in the world. But the city is home to more than just great slopes and powdery snow. It also has its share of poverty, drugs, and unemployment. Crack letters! Crack letters for sale! It's the poorest postcode in Canada, where drugs are openly traded and prostitutes, the homeless, and mentally ill wander the streets. It's the dark side of Vancouver. There's a dark side to the city, an out-of-control street trade in hard drugs and ever more violent drug trafficking. Vancouver's dark side won't be easy to keep under wraps, especially with the whole world watching. No one is saying that there aren't problems in Vancouver or the downtown east side, and we, we expect the media is going to do a, a, a good job of showing both sides of the equation. We're not going to hide these problems. We need to solve them. And uh, I think that that kind of scrutiny actually uh, puts more pressure on us to fix these problems sooner than later. By the time the Olympics left town, the old port city had mostly been scrubbed away. It had been almost completely overwritten by world-class luxury investment opportunities. And the upheaval wasn't nearly over. The BC government bought up dozens of dilapidated old buildings in the downtown core for a project they called the SRO Renewal Initiative. 
One of these buildings was the Lakeshore, where Patty and Joe lived. The project promised to provide residents of these SROs with, quote, clean, affordable, and safe long-term housing with access to integrated social programs and services. We, we're here to announce that we're ready to get to work on a number of the other buildings that we bought, some of the pictures of buildings behind you. This isn't going to be about cutting ribbons, it's going to be about individual people and finding the services to match up in housing so they, they can have a stable life and turn their lives around and have a better life in the future. After the games, the government started to renovate some of its newly acquired SROs, including the Lakeshore. Patty and Joe tell Dania that they're asked to move out, until the renovations are done. This could take a year or more, but they actually don't hate the idea, because it comes with a promise. Their understanding was that they would be offered uh, one of the larger suites in the building once it was renovated. So they were, they were very excited by the idea that they were going to get this couple's suite and that that was going to finally be a real home. The promise of a new renovated suite folded perfectly into Patty and Joe's white picket fence dream. Patty told Dania that she and Joe could start getting their high school diplomas at the downtown Eastside Adult Education Center. There'd be enough space in their new larger place to set up a couple of desks. But Patty told Dania there was a catch. She said that she and Joe would have to stay in supportive housing while the lakeshore was renovated for a little over a year. It had what people call wraparound services. You know, medical professionals on site, support group meetings, harm reduction supplies, that sort of thing. So in the winter of 2012, Patty and Joe moved into a new place, which I'll call Anthony House. And I was really excited to visit them there. I wanted to see what their room was like, especially after they'd been so adamant that their room at the lakeshore was, you know, the worst place that they'd ever lived. And I was wondering, of course, if all of the services that uh, were built into Anthony House were going to be helpful to them, especially given that they were navigating quite complex substance use and mental health needs. So I went to visit them quite shortly after they moved in. I'm imagining sort of a, a five to ten story narrow old building. Um, you know, there's so many of them. Yeah. So when I walked in, I thought the buildings look different. I mean, absolutely. There was just a different energy there. You've got that glassed in reception area. You've got the cameras uh, on every floor. I'm reading from one of Daniel's papers now. Anthony House was bathed in neon light. The vintage black and white tile floors might actually have been charming, if not for the monochrome paint job that glowed a pale yellowish green under the harsh fluorescent lighting. Youth were limited to their own floor, nurses on site. Um, there was, you know, a, a sort of a an glass encased office for, for healthcare workers to, to use. Um, some young people did have uh, medications, you know, delivered to their door. It, for at least for many of the young people who I was working with, it felt very institutionalized and very medical. It felt like a very institutional and, and medicalized space. When you were imagining in the past, when you would write in your papers, what we need is like so, supportive housing. Were you imagining something that looked like this new version of housing or when you first got in there did you think this isn't really what I had in mind? I don't think I was imagining anything. I think that to be totally honest I was recommending something that sounded really important in principle but I wasn't thinking 
nearly closely enough about what it should look like in practice. Daniel said there was a lot to like at Anthony House. The staff often seemed caring, there were harm reduction supplies, but Anthony House was kind of antiseptic compared to the old SROs. There was less chaos, less danger, and also less freedom. Joe told me that it was desolate. Quote, it feels like the walls are caving in on your head. And Patty said, it's just like jail, basically. They told me they'd sit around in their rooms all day, just listening for the footsteps and jingling keys of the staff who'd make hourly inspections. Quote, that's all you hear, jingle, jingle, jingle. I can't stand it. Dania's research group told her that even harm reduction could feel oppressive at Anthony House. Harm reduction started as a radical bottom-up act of mutual aid, something we did for ourselves, something punk rock. But at Anthony House, it felt more institutional. There's this professionalized model, right, where we hand everybody, you know, the harm reduction supplies as they walk into their supportive housing building. And from a public health perspective, it's like, okay, it's the same same thing, right? We're we're facilitating access to clean syringes, to, you know, water and ties and all of these things that are important for helping to keep people safe. But it's not the same thing, at least not according to the young people who I've talked to. In one scenario, there's a real ownership of this of this initiative to keep each other safe and healthy. And in the other, there is a sort of control piece where it's like you need to be in your supportive housing building using these supplies and, you know, not doing so could mean eviction. You know, some some youth would talk about how being in these environments gave them flashbacks, you know, gave them flashbacks to other moments in their life when they had been institutionalized. I don't think that any human really loves to be controlled, but I think once you're criminalized, you get this real sensitivity, like you, the, the little meter in your brain, it becomes very sensitive to power. It, it sort of looks like the, that big red signal on Sam's screen over there. You know, the yes. when our voices are going, the signal rises and falls. And I always think there's a there's a little analog version of that in the needle. You, you can just feel it in the room or the architecture or even when the people are being really nice, but behind the politeness is sort of an ultimatum or something. That thing just ticks up there and your safety is linked to you paying attention to that thing and trying to remove yourself from the situation when your when your power meter is is ringing into the red there, you know. I mean, I think you just put that perfectly. We underestimate how much those cues matter in that context. So we think, well, does it really matter that we've got this fob system? Does it really matter that we've got this Glaston reception desk? Does it matter you know, we're providing people with safe housing where they have all the harm reduction supplies that they need, where they have wraparound medical support. But in fact, those things do matter because as you as you said, and as many young people commented, you know, you're immediately drawn into, into flashbacks or, you know, this kind of, this feeling of, I need to get out of here. Um, this isn't, this isn't a safe place for me to be. Which, which is, of course, ironic given that these environments were designed to increase safety. 2013 was a treacherous year for Patty and Joe. 
They were stuck at Anthony House, with months to go before the renovations at the lakeshore would be complete. And that, I need to get out of here feeling, was everywhere. So they spent less and less time in their room. A classic strategy for spending time away from the building was using tons of crystal meth and leaving for days on end and just moving around the city awake and, and on crystal meth. Yeah. In addition to the meth that they were using, they fell off of, they both fell off of their methadone and, and started using a lot of down and started commenting on how good the down was getting. Patty and Joe would spend days awake, wandering the city. They'd inject in alleyways and parking lots. Using drugs outside is risky. You don't want to get busted, so you rush. You shoot up fast. No time for a little test hit. And conditions are far from sterile. Eventually, Joe was hospitalized with endocarditis. Around this time, Patty considered checking into rehab. But she was told rehab would mean forfeiting that bigger place at the lakeshore. It would mean giving up on the dream. March 2013. I'm sitting in Emory Barnes Park with Patty. I remember that it was cold for March, and it was quiet in the park. Patty tells me, I don't want to be one of those girls on the sidewalk one day. You know, like, they're like, keeping six but selling crack, and they've got the hunchback from the down. And they're skinny. And they're hopeless. I don't want to end up like that. I want to have something to show for myself one day. You don't often hear talk like that on Crackdown, but let me tell you, we've all had the same thought as Patty. We've all looked at someone else who's more fucked up than us and thought, I don't want that to be me. As you're you're looking around and feeling worried about the way these places are put together, are you still hopeful that this could be a stepping stone to that better kind of life that they wanted? I mean, I was hopeful to the extent that some young people were still hopeful. So there was this one day when Patty insisted that I did come into the building and come into their room. And it surprised me because they so often wanted to spend time outside of the room. Uh, but that day she invited me in and she had cleaned the room. I mean, really, I'd never seen their room like this. She had, you know, made the bed and, and she had this like, this sort of shiny, uh, synthetic green emerald green bedspread that she'd smoothed out and these two little pillows were sort of stacked up and there was a, a, a knitted quilt that had been carefully laid over the end of the bed mm -hmm. and I mean it was just so striking I'll never forget that you know it, it reminded me of those narratives about the white picket fence home this was a powerful moment of hope a reminder that Anthony House was a kind of purgatory and that Patty and Joe would not let it keep them from salvation. June 2014. Patty is ecstatic when we meet at McDonald's. She's positive and energized, talking a mile a minute about her plans for the future. Joe has a smile on his face as he allows her to do all of the talking. Patty tells me, July 14th is when we move back into the lakeshore and we're going to get a big room with our own bathroom and our own living room and stuff like that. I want to get cleaning and packing a month before. I can't wait. It's going to be so much better. Patty and Joe moved into their renovated room at the lakeshore in the summer of 2014. 
Danya is thrilled for them, but she's away on a work trip. When she gets back, she hurries to see their room, and she brings some housewarming gifts. I brought them a doormat. I brought them, uh, you know, like the towels that you... Dish towels? Dish towels. And I think I brought them a potted fake plant. I wasn't sure if they were going to be allowed to have a real plant or not. So I had this kind of potted fake plant. And, you know, the apartment was great. The place at the lakeshore was big, about twice as big as the room at Anthony House. There was a bedroom, a living room, a kitchenette, and a bathroom. But Danny is surprised to see that the place is a mess when she shows up. And Patty and Joe don't seem interested in the housewarming gifts. I try to tell which side of the room they're using for sleeping, and which side they're using for the desk area, or if that plan has been abandoned. I spot a mattress on the floor covered with stuff. I don't see any desks. How's it going? I ask tentatively. I don't want to make them feel bad about the state of things. Patty tells Dania it's not going good. The renovated room wasn't what they expected. They didn't just renovate the lakeshore, they changed it on an almost metaphysical level. There were now CCTV cameras at the lakeshore, just like at Anthony House. There was also a health and wellness check policy. If staff didn't hear from you in a couple of days, they might just go in your room and check things out. And there was also a new FOB system. Patty says, even if you live in the building, your keycard will only work if it's the floor you live on. And like, I have friends on the third, fourth, and fifth floor. And so every time I want to go to one of those floors, which is like a million times a day, I have to ask one of the staff to open the door. Patty tells Dania that the Lakeshore's manager had evicted one of her friends, and that it was because she had used drugs with her door open. And this seemed particularly unfair, because Patty says that's how residents of the Lakeshore always use drugs. We looked at it as harm reduction, because we don't want to, like, die in our rooms with the door closed, alone, or whatever. But now the manager and a lot of the new residents are looking at us like, whoa, they're like hardcore junkies. They are watching us all the time. And just because me and Joe are like a little bit loud sometimes, she says she wants to move Joe to a new building and me to a small room. Joe whispers, and she just wants to like separate us. Patty says, it definitely leads to more of the hopelessness. Kind of a depressed feeling, which definitely leads to using more and a lot more of a fuck it attitude. This kind of disappointment wasn't new for Patty and Joe, but this time it felt worse. They had staked so much on the idea of this room, and by now it was clear that this wasn't gonna be anything like their white picket fence dream. And so they really start to lean into that fuck it attitude. Daniel remembers one visit in particular. I could not believe the state that, that the place was in. Um, it was completely overrun with all of their stuff and, you know, there were rigs everywhere on the floor and, um, you know, the place was just a mess. I mean, I'd seen rooms like that before, but, but to be honest, I hadn't seen their room like that in any setting. I couldn't even go into the room, um, but I asked Patty, you know, what's going on with, with your room? Like, what's going on here? And she said, 
I've put everything like this so that the building workers and other workers won't even be able to step foot in here. They won't be able to come in. It's like Patty's trying to defend and fortify their room, building a rampart out of rigs to keep others out. A desperate bid to grab back a bit of the control that the very architecture of the lakeshore seems to steal away. But of course, this doesn't really work. And eventually, the pressure gets to them. Joe's mental health falls apart. He and Patty start fighting a lot. And one of these fights gets ugly. Joe is kicked out of the lakeshore for good. He and Patty break up. And Daniel doesn't hear from either of them for months. Until finally, just before Christmas, Patty tells her she wants to meet up and talk. December 2015. We walk a couple blocks to a chic coffee shop that Patty likes. She says everything has been going fine. She's dyed her hair bright red and lost a lot of weight. She seems much frailer than the last time we saw each other. It is below zero, but she wears only a thin blue hoodie. She's off methadone, she tells me, and is using more down but less crystal meth these days. Patty tells Dania that without Joe, she's been moved back into a smaller room at the lakeshore. She's still purposefully keeping it messy to repel the staff. The conversation is grim, but things liven up when Dania brings up their photography project. She suddenly surprises me by getting visibly excited. She even offers to get everyone together to work on the exhibit on their own time. This is the Patty I used to know so well, the one who gets excited about research and projects. She makes a valuable suggestion. We should all go to an exhibit so that we can see an example of what we are trying to create. I promise to plan this. Outside, as she gives me a hug and turns to leave, she says, love you, just like so many young people do when they say goodbye to each other. I don't know why, but it breaks my heart this time. In 2018, after years of work, Daniel's photography project wraps up. She books an art space on the downtown east side and invites people from the community to come. It was the opening night, and a number of the young people, the artists, were there and were circulating, and it was absolutely packed. You know, it was it was an event for sure. Patty was one of the people who didn't show up at the beginning, um, which was hard. Patty and Joe's photos hang on the wall in a collection they titled Where We Ended Up. There's a picture of a hospital bed, of their room at Anthony House, and of English Bay. The photos express the two sides of Patty and Joe's relationship, both the places they'd gotten stuck, but also the dreams they shared of a better life. Now the relationship was over. Dania understood why Patty might not want to show. I was on the other side of the room and I saw her and she kind of came in and like a few other youth were sort of said hi and, and, and I think she, you know, she was getting waves and nods and it was welcoming, but she was also just totally overwhelmed. I didn't even get a chance to, like, make it over to the other side of the room, and um, she walked out. That was one of the last times that Dania and Patty saw each other. Just a few months ago, Dania got an alert on Facebook. A friend told her, Patty has died from overdose. A small memorial is going to be held in the building. 
but Dania won't be able to attend because of COVID restrictions. Dania has tried to contact Joe several times since then, but he hasn't returned her calls. How do, how do you feel when you, right now? Yeah, it's, it's, I mean, it's just so heartbreaking to think that, you know, that I'm sitting here telling this story and that Patty isn't here, you know, telling this story with me or isn't telling it herself. Um, it's awful. We were asking ourselves this um, same question. Like, how do you survive carrying those kind of stories and that kind of loss around with you? Like, because I was trying to figure it out for us, for myself, you know? Um, Yeah, because, I mean, the only thing sadder than, you know, Patty dying uh, is that, you know, nobody hears the story. You know, at least I can tell that story and work against that that disappearance I hope I've done justice to it I hope I've told it in a good enough way there's a desperation I think you know for those for those who support bill 22 there's there's a desperation to to save young people's lives uh, I, I understand that feeling intimately, but I think what my broader program of research shows and my work with young people shows is that, you know, we can, we can keep young people safe in a, a hospital for a number of days, or we can keep them safe in a treatment center, you know, for a number of days. But what happens next? What do we have to offer these young people? Because until we, do have something to offer them. Um, Some of them have made the decision that they're better off working on this stuff on their own. We all have a version of Patty's white picket fence dream. Eventually, I had to accept that my dream, my bedtime story, was just some bullshit I was telling myself. Some excuse that I didn't have to stare down my own bleak future. And so, I gave it up. I stopped imagining that I ever wake up and be someone different and better. I was always just going to be me, a guy on opioids, maybe forever. For part of my life, heroin actually helped me feel in control. But I figured maybe I could do it different, use safer and less, and make peace with a lifetime on methadone. If I wanted to end the drug war, I had to end the drug war within first. After I accepted that, the rest of the dreams started to come true, slowly, over years. I'm not broke anymore. I got that good union job. Yeah, I gotta go to the methadone clinic and piss in a cup, but I don't wake up sick. I'm back in school, and I'm with someone I love. And these days, I don't worry that those sirens are coming for me.
Crackdown is produced on the territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh nations. We make this podcast with funds from the Canadian Institutes of Health Research and the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada, and from our Patreon supporters. You can find a complete transcript for today's show, as well as photographs and links to further readings at patreon.com slash crackdownpod. While there, consider giving us a few bucks. It helps. Our editorial board is Samoa Marsh, Shelda Castor, Greg Fess, Jeff Loudon, Dean Wilson, Al Fowler, Laura Shaver, and, rest in peace, Dave Murray and Sharice Kiwatton. Today's episode was conceptualized, written, and produced by Sam Fenn, Alex Kim, Alex DeBoer, Dania Fast, Ryan McNeil, and me, Garth Mullins. Dania's research was supported by funding from CIHR, Vancouver Foundation, the Sick Kids Foundation, and the Michael Smith Foundation for Health Research. Original score for today's episode was written and performed by me, Sam Fenn, and James Ash. Some of the music you heard was also from 100 Block Rock, a compilation of various artists from Vancouver's downtown east side. Info on how to get a copy is on our website and at Bandcamp. Thanks for listening. Be safe. Keep six. See you in the new year? Sure. Or are you worried about putting out? <laughs> Who knows when we'll see no, you. This, <laughs> yeah, this no happening. IOUs. <laughs> this is happening. Yeah. All right. <clears throat> Good enough. Do you want to put a see you in the new year? See you in the new year. <laughs>